0: Great to see you all, and we are going to continue our series, the title of which you see on the screen, Get a Life, and we have notes for that, and the guys have some notes. And if you need notes, then get your hand up, and these guys will get a set of notes to you. We'll be on page 14, page 14. And just before we start with page 14, men, this uh, Friday is the Men's Night at the Range, 6 to 10, Wayne County Sportsman's Club. You need to purchase tickets for that. They're at the resource center, $20 for the meal, the ammunition, all of that stuff. So that's a, it's a good deal for all you get, yeah, 6 o'clock this Friday. And then two weeks from yesterday is our next newcomer's brunch at our house, 10 a.m. on Saturday the 5th, and we'd love to have you come if you've never been to a brunch at our house, but we need to know if you're coming, so let the folks at the information desk know. And they have an invitation for you that reminds you of the time, gives you a map to our house. Anybody that's never been, plan on coming. We would love to love to have you, but let those guys know. And then on the 12th, Saturday the 12th, we have a a family event. It's bowling. Uh, I think it's at 1 in the afternoon, but that's in your program, but I'm pretty sure it's at 1 o'clock. And uh, two games of bowling, Woodhaven Lanes. Tickets for that also, and those are $7, and uh, you can purchase those also at the Resource Center. Lastly, on the 20th of March is our next baptism. If you've never been baptized, this is your opportunity. If you don't know what qualifies one to be baptized, that's why I'm here to help you with that. And your first step is to fill out a one page application for baptism. You can get that at the information desk, turn it in to them, they'll get it to me, and then we'll go from there. As we look at this class, Get a Life, we began last week looking at the purpose for which God has placed us here and left us here. And it's the same purpose that God has at all times and in all places and in all ages. And that is to bring glory to himself. So if asked, what is the purpose for all things? The Bible teaches it is to glorify God, to bring glory to God. But what is the glory of God? The glory of God is the display of his character. And we see that in passages like Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, we sin when we fail to be like God and talk like God and act like God. We were made to reflect God back to God. We were made to display God's glory, his character. So the purpose for all things at all times is the glory of God. And the glory of God is the display of God's God's character. We were made, created to display God's character. And that's why humanity was made in the image of God. And God desires to see those mirrors reflecting him back to him everywhere in his world. That is why when God created the first man and woman and the Bible tells us we were made in his image, we humanity alone among God's creation made in his image. It also says that we are to be fruitful and multiply because God wants to see those those mirrors everywhere. And the Bible tells us in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the 66th of the 66 books of the Bible, where John, who wrote it, is given by God a glimpse of what's to come. In Revelation chapter five, we saw last week that John is given this glimpse of of heaven and worship in heaven. And there's going to be this. Universal worship going on of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And what are they going to be worshiping God and extolling him for? Well, it says in Revelation 5, 11 through 14, for his character, for who he is. And then because of who he is, what he has done. And so they're going to be praising God because of his character. So God's glory is for us to display his character and also to... Render praise to God for the display of his character to us. So his character, we saw last week, is what theologians call ascriptive glory. Or, excuse uh, excuse me, intrinsic glory. God's character is his intrinsic glory. Who he is just by virtue of being God. And then the praise that we give to God for the display of his glory is ascriptive glory. We ascribe to God glory and honor and praise because of who he is. But all of it, then... Is God's glory. And that was the purpose for which we were made. But because of sin, the mirrors are cracked. They're not obliterated, but we don't reflect God back to God accurately now. The mirrors are distorted, and the image that we present of God is distorted. And so God is in this reclamation project now. He's remaking the mirrors, He's repairing the mirrors. And that's now where we are. We're between what we were originally made to be in the image of God, clearly and accurately reflecting God back to Him in the way we think and talk and act. And then at the end, Revelation 5, when we will be fully repaired and we will be reflecting God and praising God for His character, we're in this between period where we are each being remade if we belong to Christ. But God also is calling out people. From every nation, from all nations, to be part of that reclamation project as well. And we are going to see, probably today, we'll begin to see that we have been called to participate in both of those. That we are here to continually be remade into the image of Christ. Romans 8, 29 tells us that he predestined us to be conformed to, conformed to the image of his dear Son. So we're called to do that, and we're also called to call other people into this process of being remade in, into God's image. So the universal worship of God, that is his purpose. He made this world for him to be worshipped and his character to be displayed by mirrors all over his world. This universal worship of God requires a worldwide mission calling people out from everywhere. So you want to know why we're here? We're here, for, we're here for that. We're here to display God's character, and then we're here to spread God's fame, His glory in His world, by calling other people to that same process. So on page 14, about the middle of page 14, just above where it says, the glory of God in the church, you see those last two lines. Evangelism exists where worship does not. So as long as there is a pocket in God's world where worship does not exist, there will be a need for evangelism. Because God desires and deserves to be praised by all of his creatures. Evangelism then exists wherever worship does not. And then that last line, God's desire for universal worship requires a worldwide mission. All right. So where do you fit into that? Where do I fit into that? Well, that begins then with where, first of all, the church fits into that. There's where the church fits into it, and then there's where you fit into it. And then we can begin to answer the question, how do I get a life? How do I order my life around the purpose for which God has me here? So middle of page 14, the glory of God and the church. And here I've got this extended quote from Ephesians chapter 3. Where the Bible says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. All right, what is that? Now, Notice I have an uh, underlined. In the very first line there, the word administration. And the reason I have it underlined is because that word administration is a translation of a Greek word. You know that your New Testament was written in Greek. And the Greek word is oikonomos. That is a compound of two Greek words, oikos and namos. Oikos, what is that? Oikos, some of you ladies, you think that's yogurt. It's not. Before it was yogurt, a yogurt brand. It was this Greek word in your New Testament that means house. Oikos, house. Namas means law or rule or order. So oikonomos means house law or house rule, house order. The idea is that the world is God's house. And that God orders and rules his house the way he desires. So the translation administration is a good one. It's how God is administering his world. It's the house rules for how God is getting done what he wants done in his world. And here Paul, who wrote this, says, surely you have heard about the administration, the house law, the house order of God's grace and that was given to me for you. Now, sometimes that word's translated here administration. In the King James version that is you've heard about the dispensation. If you have a King James Bible, you see the word dispensation there. So sometimes someone will say, "Hey, are you a dispensationalist?" And you, you know, my answer is, well that's a Bible word. So you got to be a dispensationalist, at least in some sense. You know, it's the it's the same thing when people uh, say, "Do you believe in a rapture?" Well, again, that's that's a Bible word. In First uh, Thessalonians four seventeen, the Bible says that there will come a time when those who belong to Christ will be. In the NIV, it says "caught up," and if you had a if you had a Latin Bible you would have the Latin word from which we get our English word rapture there. So it's a, Bible, it's a Bible word. Now, if you want to ask, what do you believe about the rapture, and when's the rapture going to happen, and who gets to go, and all of that, okay, that's another matter. But do you believe in a rapture? Yeah. That's a Bible word. And do I believe in dispensations? Yeah. Because God says there are these administrations. And we are in a particular one now. And I would suggest to you that you, at very minimum, as you go through your Bible, just a cursory reading through your Bible requires you to believe in at least four administrations or dispensations, house orders, that God has done things according to different rules at different times. I mean, one would be the garden. You know, that was a different set of rules, wasn't it? I mean, we don't have to debate that, do we? You know, you got, you got a couple of special trees, you know, and, and stay away from the one. And you don't get access to the other, the tree of life, until you've had this probationary test. And once you fail failed the probationary test, which our first parents did, now they're banished from the garden. And the Bible tells us so that they can't get to the tree of life and live forever. Well, when was the last time you had that as your house rule? That's a different administration. That's a different dispensation. But then you have the law. And the law with all of its ceremonies, civil ceremonies and religious laws and civil laws. Well, you're not under, you're not under, that's not, you're not doing that now, are you? When was the last time you sacrificed a sheep? If I had someone in my neighborhood who had a sheep, I would probably sacrifice it for them. I would, I'm would. i not a big animal lover. Did you, know, did you know that? That's as close as I would come to sacrificing a sheep. So you're not under the law. You don't practice the law. That was a different house order. We're going to see that we're in at least a third one right now. And then the Bible speaks of a time in the future when there's going to be the kingdom. And the kingdom is going to be thanked. The Lord is going to be different than it is now <laughs> here. Going to be radically different. So you at least got four different sets of house rules, house orders. You got the garden, you got the law, you've got what is sometimes called the church age now, and then you've got the kingdom. So are you a dispensationalist? Let me answer that for you. Yep. It's a Bible word. Now there are other things that go with what some people mean by that. I understand that. But here is what is being said, that you have heard about the house order, the house rule of God's grace that was given to me, Paul, for you. And then he says that is the mystery made known to me by revelation. The the mystery, I think this is my last Greek word today, but musterion, and musterion means this, something that was previously unknown that has been made known. Something previously unknown that has now been made known. So I am the steward of this administration of God's grace for you, says Paul. That is this thing that was previously unknown that has now been made known. And how did was it made known? God revealed it to me, to Paul. In reading this, he goes on to say, Then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. So what is this thing that was previously unknown that is now made known? In the language that's used there, it is Gentiles are now heirs with Israel and members together of one body. What is that body? The body is the church. That's why we call it the church age. If you want proof that... This mystery refers to and this body refers to the church. Paul, who wrote this, says something very similar in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 and 26. And there he explicitly says the mystery is the church. So the church is this thing that didn't exist before. And you didn't have Jews and Gentiles together in one body. But now... In this administration, in this dispensation of God's grace as he pursues his glory. You have them together in this one body, this thing called the church. In the middle of that passage, I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. By the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Now, when did that happen? When was... Paul given this become a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given by the working of his power well in Acts chapter 9 you have the recording of the miraculous spectacular conversion of Saul of Tarsus that we know as Paul and many of you know the story but Saul is on his way to persecute Christians to kill Christians and Jesus appears to him and he's spectacularly converted. And as part of that story, a man named Ananias is told to go and and visit Paul. And Ananias is afraid. And he protests. He says, "Uh, Lord, I've heard about this guy. And here's what the Lord says to Ananias. Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. This man is my chosen instrument to do this. And when in Ephesians 3, Paul then says that God has made me a servant of this gospel that he gave to me by the working of his power, the working of his power, you better believe it. (laughs) By the way, how much free will was Paul exercising in his conversion? You ever thought about that? I mean, his free will was going to Damascus to kill people. And Jesus exerted his will on Paul's. And he said, you're going to go a different direction. So God chose Paul. And by the way, God chooses everybody who become his people. And if God didn't choose and God didn't overcome your and my sinful, rebellious will, you'd still be going to Damascus. So that's why he says by the working of his power. And although I am less, he goes on, than the least of all of God's people, less than the least of all of God's people, and I have always been interested in these three ways in Paul's writings that he refers to himself. In his earlier, one of his earlier books in first Corinthians chapter 15, he refers to himself as the least of all of the apostles, the least of the apostles. Now to be the least of the apostles is still pretty cool because there aren't many apostles. I mean you're one of a a select group, just two handfuls, okay? So it's humble. I'm the least of the apostles, but it's still elite, an elite group. But then you find later, Ephesians is written later, and he says, I am the less than the least of God's people. And then you find still later in 1 Timothy chapter 1 in verse 15, 1 Timothy 1 15. You remember there, this is a trustworthy saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So as Paul goes on in his walk with God, he gets worse. He gets worse in terms of his view of himself. This is just as an aside, but that's often what maturity does. The more you grow, the more brightly the grace of God shines because you see yourself in more depths of your own sinfulness. But here he says that I'm the least of all of God's people, but this grace was given me. And you see after the word me there, the colon. So this grace was given me. What grace? Colon. Well, I'm going to tell you what this grace that was given me, Paul, was. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So that's one. So if you had a piece of paper in your hand and at the top it said, Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, ministry description. He would list first, number one, here's my first task. This is what I've done and I'm doing. I'm preaching to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And you would see number two, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. The house rules, the house order of this thing that had not been made known before, but has now been made known. Which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. So that's what God has given me, Paul. And he's really excited about it, to put it mildly. How do I know he's really excited about it? Because what I've started quoting for you here is Ephesians 3, but I've started in verse 2. But actually, if you look at that in your Bible, Ephesians chapter 3, it starts in verse 1 with him saying this, For this reason I kneel before the Father. And then he just stops. And in the NIV, they have a dash after that because he just breaks off into this thing. He's getting ready to say, I kneel before the Father and this is how I pray. But before he does that, it comes to his mind, this is unbelievable that God is allowing me to do this. And that God is allowing you Ephesians to be a part of this thing. Surely you have heard about this. And then he goes off with this marvelous thing. Does he ever come back to what he started out? Yeah. When you get to verse 14 of Ephesians 3, he comes and says, for this reason, I kneel. And He comes back to what he was going to say. But he breaks it off. What we're seeing here is this kind of break off with all of his excitement. And God has given me to do this. And then I have underlined for you what is verse 10 of Ephesians 3. His intent, God's intent, was that now, You see this through what? Through the church. God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. His intent was that now. His purpose is going to be fulfilled through the church. And after Paul continues, you know, I kneel, verse 14. And then you get down to verse uh, 20 with this well-known conclusion to Ephesians 3, where he says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. All right, so what are you supposed to be doing? What's your purpose? What's my purpose? The Sunday school answer to that is bring glory to God. And that's the right answer. What's God's purpose for you, for me, and everything else? The glory of God. But how am I going to get that done? How is he designed that the display of his character is going to take place in his world now? And God is very clear that that's done through the church. So I say at the bottom of page 14, God's purpose is always and at all times his own glory. And at this time, he is accomplishing that purpose through his church as it extends his fame throughout his world via the Great Commission. The Great Commission itself is inextricably tied to the advance of the church, as we will document now. So if you go to page 15. So what's my mission? What's your mission? Bring glory to God. What's the vehicle through which God at this time, in this house order, in this administration, this dispensation is doing that? The church. That's why this is called the church age, appropriately. And how do the church and the mission go together? And that's what we have on page 15. The advance of the church and the advance of the Great Commission. Top of page 15. Evangelicals are known for their zeal in pursuing the spread of the gospel. In fact, the word, the very word evangelical is derived from the Greek word euangelion. So euangelion, we get angel angel from that eu, the eu there. When you put a eu prefix, eu prefix, like a eulogy, is to say good words about someone when they pass away, a eulogy. A euphemism is to take something that would otherwise sound bad and make it sound better. So... You angel, angel is an angel, is a messenger. Angelion is message, and you means good. You angelion means good message, good news. That's what we mean by that's the word for gospel or evangel. Therefore, an evangelical can be defined as one who believes and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. But many mistakenly believe that's the end of our task. But the mere proclamation of the gospel message is not the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So evangelism and proclamation of the gospel is certainly absolutely indispensable, necessary, essential to the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not less than the gospel, but it's more than the proclamation of you need a relationship with with Christ. And why do we say that middle of that paragraph obedience to Jesus command in the Great Commission requires, quote, baptizing and, quote, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Implicit in those words is the indispensable role of the church in his mission, because it's into the church that people are baptized. Spirit baptism brings one into the church the body of Christ universal, and water baptism brings one into the church local. You see that in Acts chapter 2. There were 3,000 baptized and they were added to the church, added to their number via that. So Jesus says, baptize them, that is, bring them into the church. And as we will see, the church's implicit role in the Great Commission becomes explicit as the apostles begin to carry it out. The following demonstrates that the multiplication of local churches is the means by which God has chosen to carry out the Great Commission and pursue his glory in this age. So I have gone through this. Uh, In fact, just a few weeks ago, I went through some of this during the first hour. Those of you that are with us uh, in my Wednesday class, how to get the most out of your Bible. We happen to be in the book of Acts. So we've gone through some of this. So my apologies. Uh, If you want to nod out, uh, just don't snore. If the person next to you snores, hit them, you know, so the Bible says, greet one another with a holy kiss. If someone snores, greet them with a smack. Okay. That's my, that's my uh, instruction to you, but you have three places that the great commission is given in your new Testament three. A lot of times we think there's only one because of the most well-known is in Matthew 28 and verse 19, but you actually have it in a couple of other places. Uh, the Great Commission is given in Matthew 28. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's the; Those are the final words of Jesus before he ascends back to heaven from which he came. These are his final words. This is what I want you to do. Do this. He says to his first followers, and he says, I'll be with you to the very end of the age, so therefore by extension to us as well. This is why we call it the Great Commission. These are Jesus' instructions to do this, to pursue my glory this way. So that's the most well-known passage in which the Great Commission, Jesus' final instructions are given, Matthew twenty eight. But I say here, few believers realize that Matthew twenty-eight contains but one of three statements of the Great Commission. The other two are in Luke twenty four and Acts one. In Matthew twenty eight, Matthew twenty-eight is the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew that gives the Matthew gives the birth of, of Jesus, gives his earthly ministry, his death, his resurrection, and then his final words And then that's the end of the Gospel of Matthew. When you come to Luke 24, Luke has 24 chapters. And at the end of Luke 24, the exact same spot chronologically that Matthew is in Matthew 28. Luke has recorded the birth of Jesus, the earthly ministry of Jesus, his death, his resurrection. And now when you come to the end of Luke 24, you're in exactly the same spot as Matthew's recording in Matthew 28. But what Luke does is give us some additional words that Jesus spoke in that commissioning. So you put them together and you have a fuller view of what it is Jesus is telling us to do. Luke says, Jesus told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. You know that this is a statement of the Great Commission because it's happening at the same time chronologically as what was happening in Matthew. You also know it because he says this is going to happen in all nations, just like Matthew did. Make Go and make disciples of all nations. But Luke is giving us some additional information. You're not not going to go and proclaim and baptize and teach. You're not just going to do that. But the content of what's going to be preached is repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's what you're going to preach. Repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations. So Luke gives some information that Matthew didn't give us. Matthew told us baptize and teach. And Luke says... You're going to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now, just remember those three words, baptizing, repentance, and forgiveness of sins, because they're going to show up again in a minute. Baptizing in Matthew, repentance and forgiveness of sins in Luke, and we're going to see them here in a minute. And then the third statement of the Great Commission is found in Acts chapter one. And the reason it's found in Acts chapter one is because the person who wrote the book of Acts is none other than Luke. So Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. You have to go to seminary to know this. When I used to teach teenagers many years ago, I used to say, so who wrote Luke? And they would go Luke. And I would say, who wrote Acts? And they would go Acts. Okay. That's teenagers, all right? But who wrote Acts? Luke wrote Acts. Luke has two books in your New Testament. He's got he's got the Gospel of Luke about the life and ministry and death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, but then he has got the Acts of the Apostles. And we know that because both of those are addressed to the same person, someone named Theophilus. And Luke writes the account of Jesus' life in Luke chapter 1 and verse 4 to Theophilus, he says, and then in Acts chapter 1 and verse 1, here's what it says. In my former book, Theophilus. So what would that former book be? That would be the Gospel of Luke. And in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. All that he began to do and teach. Which implies that Jesus is still doing work. He began work, he's still doing work. But he's doing that work through his people. So I wrote about all he began to do and teach. And now these are the acts, the deeds, the practices of the apostles. And then we're continuing that. So in Acts chapter 1, Luke is picking up where he left off with the gospel of Luke. And where did he leave off? With Jesus' final words, the Great Commission. And as he summarizes in my former book, this is what I wrote about. And... He gives another statement of the Great Commission. Bottom of page 15, he records Jesus as saying, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So top of page 16, I say what I was just telling you, that Luke picks up where he left off. But he combines the information found in Matthew 28 and Luke 24 that the mission is going to advance from Jerusalem and then move beyond that. So stay with it as best you can. We've only got about eight minutes. Jesus has accomplished his earthly mission. He gives the Great Commission as his final instructions. Matthew records them as go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. And then Luke records in Luke 24 some additional words that Jesus spoke on that occasion. That the content of the preaching to all nations is going to be repentance and forgiveness of sins. And then Luke gives us some addition an additional way in which Jesus phrased this in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. That you're going to be my witnesses. It's going to start in Jerusalem and then it's going to extend to the regions beyond and then to the ends of the earth. All right, so all three of these are statements of of the Great Commission. Now, as you look at the book of Acts, then, the outline for the book of Acts is really found in that verse, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, that this is going to start in Jerusalem, it's going to spread out to Judea and Samaria, and it's going to continue outward from there. And here's part of the reason I say that, because people smarter than me say that. And the smarter than me people wrote the Bible Knowledge Commentary, and I have a quote from them here. The outline used in this study is the result of using two keys in Acts. The first and most obvious one is the theme verse, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The second key is the use that Luke makes of progress reports, which are sprinkled throughout the book. And then he gives the nine, they give the nine references where these um or excuse me, seven references where these progress reports are given. The beautiful correlation of these two factors, the key verse of Acts eight and the seven progress reports form the basis of the outline for the book of Acts. So the theme is it's going to start in Jerusalem, it's going to move outward, and then chapters 2 through 28 of Acts document that progress, starting in Jerusalem and going outward. And if you read through it, that's exactly what you see. And there are these seven progress reports that are given of that happening. It goes out from Jerusalem, then it goes to Judea and Samaria, and then it goes out beyond that. Since Acts one eight forms the outline for the book of Acts, what follows in chapters 2 through 28 is the historical, historical account of how the mission was carried from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what do the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament teach us regarding how the mission is advanced? So I'm just trying to hone in on how you can get a life and how I can get a life. And for you to get a life and for me to get a life, I've got to know why God has me. And knowing why God has me here means I've got to know that I'm living in something called the church age. That God is ordering his house through this thing called the church, this new thing, new as of 2,000 years ago, called the church. And Jesus gave his final instructions that you are going to participate in carrying out this mission of baptizing and teaching and preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins. And you're going to be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem, and it's going to expand outward from there. You all are going to participate in that. And how does that happen? Well, it happens through the church. All of that stuff happens through the church. And if you don't have the church, you don't have the mission. And if you're not a participant in the church, you're not a participant in the mission. That's wow. Really? Yeah, that's what's next. Middle of page 16. The beginnings of the church and the mission are parallel. They start at exactly the same time. And we're going to see they proceed hand in hand together. Now, when did they start? They both started on the day of Pentecost. And how do I know this? Uh, I I will spare you. We've only got two minutes left. I will spare you the full reason why I know it until next week. But for now, I just want you to see, remember I ask you to remember baptizing from Matthew 28 and repentance and forgiveness of sins from Luke 24. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, what we find is Jesus' first followers waiting in Jerusalem. Because remember, he said, go and stay in the city until you receive power from on high. So that's where they are. They're in the city and they're waiting. And then when you come to Acts chapter 2, they receive this power from the Holy Spirit. And the fact that the Holy Spirit has come is evidenced in a miraculous way that those who are there are able to speak in languages that they hadn't learned. And as you read through Acts chapter 2, you find people who are there going, how is it that we hear these guys speaking in our language? So that's called speaking in tongues. Now, if you're a guest here, do not be alarmed. I am speaking in tongues now. Actually, singular. I'm speaking in a tongue. It's called English. Whenever someone speaks, they're speaking in a tongue. Because a tongue is a language. And that's what it was in Acts chapter 2. It was a language that people understood. Now, why would God use that miracle? He could have used all kinds of miracles. God can do anything, and God could have used any miracle he wanted to say, I want to get your attention Something momentous is happening. Something new is starting. So God could have done anything. He could have, the room they were in, he could have just levitated the whole room. And Luke could be recording. And there we were waiting. And the room started to float. And we knew that we had this power. So he could have done it that way. Why did he choose this language thing? Well, remember that this mission is going to go to how many nations? All nations. And the Bible tells us that gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, there were Jews from every nation under heaven. And they hear them speaking in their own language. This is a sign that this mission is starting to go to all nations. Now, the baptizing, repentance, forgiveness of sins. After this happens and people are wondering, what is this phenomenon, this miraculous thing Peter explains, and he explains from chapter 2 and verse 14 all the way to verse 36. You get to verse 37, and the people who are there say, Brothers, well, what are we supposed to do? What do we do now in response? And we have recorded for you Acts 2.38, toward the bottom of page 16. Peter replied, Repent. Now, remember, repent. That's from Luke 24. Repentance will be preached in his name. He says, Repent and be baptized. Remember, be baptized. That's from Matthew 28. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Forgiveness of sins. you got all three of those elements. Matthew's baptism and Luke's repentance and forgiveness of sins. And all of them are right there in that one verse. Guess what's starting here? The Great Commission, starting right now. Right there. But then I want to show you next week that the church started at exactly the same time the mission, and the church. And then we will see that they go forward together. And that's how we we'll begin to hone in on how you get a life and I get a life. All right, To live for God's purpose, we got to know how he's carrying out that purpose in this age. Let's ask God to go with us this week, and we'll continue there next Sunday, Lord willing. Father, thank you for this Lord's Day, the opportunity to learn of you. I thank you for these friends, brothers, and sisters. Who want to know what your purpose is for them, for us, in your world. So that we can bring glory to you and we can order our lives accordingly. So I thank you for their attendance and for their attentiveness. And I thank you most of all for the instructions you've given us in your word. You have not left us to grope in darkness. You have told us what you are accomplishing in your world and how we fit into that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for telling us and thank you for the privilege of allowing us to participate. Help us, Lord, to ponder then these things this week. We ask you to go with us as we serve you in the coming week in the spheres that you've assigned to each of us. We ask you to grant us safety and to bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.